Hi, this is Nora Jones, and I'm host today of this episode of The Language Imperative with guest Mara Kobe. Mara Kobe is the K-12 World Languages Specialist for Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools. She supervises a world language program of eight languages for a school district with over 140,000 students and approximately 275 world language teachers. The programs of Charlotte Mecklenburg include FLEX, dual language immersion in five languages, heritage programs, traditional world language programs, advanced placement, and Cambridge and IB courses. Mara also serves as the president of the National Association of District Supervisors of Foreign Language and is one of the co-authors of NADSFL's Principles of Effective World Language Programs. And that's what you're going to hear about today, an insight into the humanity and also the organization of programs that meet a variety of needs for a variety of students with a variety of educators. Taking a look at what makes effective programs, how they continue to grow and serve, and how they can transform students' lives, help teachers to feel like their most effective selves, and affect positively the community and the world. Now you're going to enjoy this thoughtful, empowering conversation with Mara Cope. Thank you for tuning in to Vista's new podcast series, The Language Imperative. This podcast series is brought to you by Vista Higher Learning. As the largest language and literacy publisher in the United States, Vista's singular focus is developing language and literacy solutions that meet the needs of all learners. Those learning a new language, improving an additional language, or perfecting their native language. Vista Higher Learning is committed to growing and innovating with you, ensuring that you have the tools to meet the needs of all your students. It's a pleasure always for me to talk to my friend Mara Kobe, and now you get to talk with her too via this podcast. Welcome, Mara. Thank you, Nora. I am so thrilled to be here, and it's great to catch up with you. I'm excited to take a look at your document that you co-authored with four other leaders. The document's called the Principles of Effective World Language Program. And I want to go to the, to the center, effective. What is an effective world language program? We can start with the communication basis, if you wish. So... Effective world language programs, you really have to think about those the four facets that we included in the document. You want to think about the program design. It shouldn't just be a random thing that pops up, you know, ninth and 10th grade and disappears, or that students are exposed in K-5, but then they don't get an opportunity to continue that language until high school, you know, so the program design needs to be intentional. Um, and once you have a program that has articulation and all those pieces, you also need to, of course, be considering what is the curriculum and it should be proficiency based and using authentic resources and all of the things that make appropriate, effective, intentional 
curricular uh, design for language programs to build student proficiency and the interculturality component pieces. And then, of course, you want to consider the um, how you will assess that the students are actually meeting the targets you've set. And you don't want it to just be one type of assessment. It needs to be a broader picture. Um, also intentional between the program design, the assessment curriculum piece, you want to extend opportunities for heritage learners, for uh, heritage languages that you may not teach in your district, but you want to find connections to offer opportunities for credit for those students and foster students' first and second languages in addition to what you do offer in the district or in your school. And then, of course, the key linchpin to all of it is that you have effective instruction, and so you need to make sure that you are supporting your teachers to be effective highly effective world language uh, facilitators in their classrooms, if you will, and leaders in their classrooms. And what does a highly effective teacher look like that incorporates then some of those, especially those humane features that you just discussed? So I would actually have to refer to another document, actually outside of ours. <laughs> and I would have to give credit to what now is owned by Pearl, uh, which is out of the University of Maryland. So Thomas Sauer and others who had originally drafted something called the TELL Project. Uh, it has evolved over time. It is now a document that is owned by Pearl, which is, a, a, again, a language resource center out of the University of Maryland. It is defined by how they prepare for student language learning, what happens during student language learning, and then how the teachers are part of a professional network and reflect to improve the process all over again. And so that uh, I will tell you that everything that I do with my teachers, I am framing using the TELL project. Interesting. Why, why that? Although you've already described some of the aspects here in your introduction to it, why such focus on that? What do you know from your experience will that focus accomplish? So a good piece of what's threaded through the TELL project and all of its supporting documents, the framework, the reflection pieces, and so on, you have to engage with the students and create a safe environment for them to engage with the language, engage with the culture, engage with each other and with the teacher. And then you create these learning experiences through the use of authentic resources that disrupt and do not reinforce stereotypes and help also for students to be seen in what they're learning and connect to what they're learning. Because the whole point of learning a language is you're learning to express yourself a new way. And so there's all those pieces. Of course, the TELL project wants, you know, refers to everything is grounded in national and state standards. It makes connections to other disciplines. And then of course, 
you're teaching students how to be good um, consumers of digital information and tools in addition to all of the other pieces and of course the whole hope an intention of learning another language is not just a checkbox so that you can get into college, but so that you can actually interact with others from your own culture, from other cultures, and have a broader perspective beyond just what's in your bubble, in your house, in your, in your neighborhood, in your city, whatever. So many important points there. I'm going to go to that word that you use, Vince, safe environment. Now, you're working in a school system, so we're talking about in-classroom. So not only when you provide this, what is a safe environment, Mara? Take a look at in the classroom, but also what are the implications for out in their homes, their community? Extrapolate out a little bit. What is safety? What are the implications? Wow, Nora, that could go in so many directions. <laughs> so to give people a perspective, our district, as you mentioned earlier, we serve over 140,000 students and we are very diverse socioeconomically. We have a lot of Title I schools and then we have a lot that are the quite the opposite. And then we have some that are sort of a mix in between. Our magnet programs have done a really good job trying to um, sort of level set so that we have a good assortment of students in our programs and that it's very diverse. I know that um, I don't work directly with the English learner department or now multilingual learner department, but we have students who speak over 180 plus languages that are in our district. So you've got the socioeconomic considerations. You have the language considerations. You have other situations based on who the student is and how they identify and all of those pieces and you need to make it a safe space for every student, all students. They shouldn't fear for their physical or emotional safety while they're in your room, especially when they're learning to express themselves. That's the whole point. It's interesting we tap in every podcast basically somewhere in there on the idea of language being identity and that when a child comes in you've you've added the, the multiplicity of languages which adds to the uh, shall we say excitement of working with all of this uh, Mara there's a sense then of honoring that student's identity and you also were mentioning about interacting with others what are some of the principles of an effective work in a world language classroom from your perspective and what you train others to look at that allows students to both feel safe affirm their identity, and also interact with respect towards others. And so, Nora, I'm going to say I have goals. <laughs> that doesn't mean that it's necessarily exemplified in every single one of my classrooms. 
uh, the goal, the ideal situation would be and what we try to uh, guide our t teachers and when they create these learning environments. We want the students to know that this adult is someone that has good intentions for them, that uh, there are procedures in place for physical safety. We want uh, there to be procedures for the student to be able to interact with the teacher with e and for the students to interact with each other and the teacher has to be able to facilitate those well for all students. And so they may need to lean on some other experts in their building or in the district or across the district for uh, support with students who may have learning challenges or other factors that need support. Um, there may be technology pieces that have to uh, be added to support for students who might have hearing impairments or whatever. Um, another piece that we are working on, this is my goal, is that we need, it's, it's one thing, you know, the first layer is we cannot be reinforcing stereotypes when we're introducing those authentic resources. Though that becomes hurtful, that becomes, you know, it, I don't need to go into detail. We all know what happens when you reinforce stereotypes. So we are working with our teachers to be much more intentional about the authentic resources they select. We are trying to work on a project where there will be a library of authentic videos curated for them to select from that may help support this work. It's not just enough to make sure we're not reinforcing the stereotypes. We want our students to see themselves in what's happening. I have a teacher who is amazing, who um, her name is Rosalind Rhodes, and I'm just going to have to call her out. She's, she's fantastic. She's so intentional about the images she chooses. So for a unit on family, all families are represented in the images that she chooses. and. Her students and parents have come to her and said, thank you. This is the first time in whatever many years of school that that looks like my family. And so for me, that's the most powerful thing. Now, is that going to happen in every single classroom? Are all teachers comfortable with that? Not yet. But we want to make that opportunity and just sort of keep presenting the examples and putting out some of the things that Rose herself has shared with our teachers as, hey, here's some of the slide decks I've made. You're welcome to copy them, borrow them, adapt them for your language, whatever. Um, so we are trying to make it comfortable for our teachers to make it comfortable and safe or as Actful just had in their um, webinar this month, Brave Spaces. I don't know that we're quite ready for brave in um, in all our spaces just yet, but I definitely think safety definitely is a piece. Wow, safety, being brave—that's that's huge. Thank you for bringing up that piece. It'll be interesting to watch how that develops. You know, Mara, my audience includes those who are indeed embedded in language educational spaces and 
are hearing this with an ear of the approach of the integration of authenticity and the more sociological, if you will, aspects that language can tap on. Many others that are listening are those who have historically seen the, the act of learning language as almost divorced from the kind of cultural settings in which it is in fact found. They learn language, as I put it typically, as a topic. When you are working in your large, diverse, and volatile district, and in the nation, uh, you're the president of the National Association of District Supervisors, Foreign Language Supervisors, and that also then plays into the kinds of experiences you're seeing. What are you noting in your district and nationally, maybe beyond, with people understanding that language is more than a topic, is engaging the complete human experience? Again, Nora, a lot of different directions I could go there. So I will say at least within my district, um, some of the work that has been done with a broader scope is that there was something uh, they they pulled together, our Office of Accountability and others pulled together something and they released something called Breaking the Link, a report showing where um, some of our students had historically underperformed and were still underperforming. And they identified some key pieces and goals for our strategic plan. And more recently, another document has come out to support the movement towards those goals of that strategic plan. And they're calling it the goals and guardrails. And one of the assurances is that all students have access to a diverse and rigorous curriculum. And they identified additionally beyond, you know, advanced math or advanced English language arts courses, specifically all students should have access to advanced coursework, career and technical education, arts, and world languages, which was huge. And so the fact that it's on the radar of my district leadership and that alone has is, is significant as well. Um, as part of my scope, we also support our dual language immersion programs. And we've seen for years and years and years, we had two magnet schools that were K-8 two-way Spanish and one magnet school that had one-way programs in four different languages. We now have two programs that have one-way programs um, one on the north and one on the south. We are up to five two-way programs and not all of them are magnet. And so that is also making some inroads. It's more in demand. Uh, our community understands the value of our students becoming bilingual and biliterate and multicultural. And so that's expanding while also living in Charlotte, North Carolina. And if anybody watches the news, you know, we have some interesting politicians in our state, but I'm just going to say that and stop. Uh, you can you can research that. Um, we are still, uh, it makes, it gives me great hope that my district has actually taken an interest in the language piece, 
the advanced coursework, we offer AP and IB and Cambridge level tests and courses. We also offer credit by demonstrated mastery for students who test in a language that they may not have taken formally. And we've been able to offer credit for things like Hindi and other things. We also accept, we have um, memorandums of understanding in place with a Bulgarian language school, an external Japanese language school, um, Hebrew high through, um, so we have students getting credit for Hebrew even though we don't offer it in the district, all types of things so that we are encouraging that. And then of course, North Carolina has their uh, seal of biliteracy, which is known as the Global Languages Endorsement, which is one of five graduation endorsements. And lo and behold, in our strategic plan and the goals and guardrails, one of those measurements is increasing the number of students getting one of their graduation endorsements. Hey, I'm one of the five that we can get and we can make it. We have all kinds of pathways to get students there. So um, we're trying. <laughs> We're moving. <laughs> You're moving. Right. You're moving in the direction. Exactly. That, that's precisely what's needed. And you had asked, you know, what am I seeing as this, you know, across the country? I'm seeing bits and pieces of these things happening across the country um, in various places. I know that some states have just created new um, standards. And so Massachusetts and in New York, there are some new standards that have much more inclusive language. And so there are things moving in that direction. We're not quite there where I am, but we I know we're going to be starting a new um, standards revision process in North Carolina for world languages um, that's going to culminate, I think, around 2026 with new standards. Now, Mara, you have used the inclusivity you mentioned while there's a little bit here about the kind of well certainly the identifying and mostly overcoming of avoiding stereotypes actively you mentioned the phrase about link breaking links there's a variety of items here that have we could we talk about the idea of of safety and of healing, and it's been focused on in so far in the conversation a lot on the individual student, the specific classroom, and the concept of, of the program development. We are talking about language. What's happening in the world as a whole that language addresses? Nice small oh, question for you. Good luck. And right. <laughs> <laughs> so people are just not nice to each other. And I know it, I'm not, I'm not that person saying, oh, everybody should be nice and sweet and everybody should love each other. Yes. Yes. We want people to, we want that. The reality is not everybody understands each other. And even people who think they're speaking the same language to each other are not understanding each other right now. And so I'm going in my 30th year working in public education and as somebody entrenched in world languages. And 
this is my world. This is, this is where my heart is. This is, I want our students, our teachers, our people, our communities to work together. And the first step to doing that is to be able to understand each other, not expecting you to understand and think like each other. That's, that's a different, but the first step is we have to be able to interact and understand each other to find solutions. We may not always agree. We may not always understand everything because I cannot say that my experiences are exactly the same as your experiences or somebody else's experiences, but at least we can share information back and forth and and collaborate. And so the key for us in the United States, we have students who come to us who only speak one language. I want to support that they learn at least enough to start to interact with somebody else. For students who already come to us speaking two or three languages, let's build literacy in all of those languages, not just English. And so those are the pieces where I am. I want that to happen. I want our students to leave us and be productive in whatever pathways they choose be that going straight to work, going to the university, going to the military, whatever that is. I want them to have things in their toolboxes where they can relate to others that they will encounter along the way. Thank you, beautifully said. When such young people are sitting in the classrooms in Charlotte, Mecklenburg, North Carolina, in their world language classes, how do you, with that passion that you have brought, that insight that you've brought, help to incorporate that need and mood directly into the instruction so that big picture beyond continues to be in front of the learners? So it sounds silly, but I'm gonna go back to those four facets. We wanted to make sure that program design is is something that we think about and that we have pathways for students to continue their language, even if it's virtually, even if it means, you know, whatever those options are. So that's one. Curriculum is huge in this case. We have, it started 10 years ago. Our state was revising the standards and I was part of the group that helped to revise those and they were finally going to be proficiency based. We were the first state to actually go in that direction and Paul Sandrock from ACTFL actually came out and helped us as we were preparing to roll those out across the state. And so we were so excited to have proficiency based standards. So we revised our curriculum. So we wrote thematic units. We had Greg Duncan come out and work with us and help us. And it took us in the right direction, but it was step one and two, right? We needed to make sure that unit one or level one and level two were more accessible and not requiring that, okay, we're going to get through 12 chapters of a textbook and chapter six of this textbook, and somebody will know which textbook I'm talking about. Chapter six of this textbook, we're going to introduce family, possessive adjectives, tener, all the tener expressions, and we're going to do it all this 
And by the way, there's 300 words at the end of the chapter, and you have to know them and be perfectly accurate. And we're going to take off quarter points if you forget accents and things. No, we stop that. So thematic units, Greg helped us launch them. We brought Thomas Sauer in to help us develop them further and to create a hierarchy of our can-do statements because you can't have 30 can-do statements that are all equally important either. And so Thomas was instrumental in helping us reimagine our units for levels one, two, and three so that we would make it A, more accessible, B, more realistic and aligned with proficiency goals and research, and C, try to incorporate more authentic topics that students would want to talk about. Is it perfect? No. Would we like to revise them again? Sure. But we have incorporated those things. And then even when, I don't know what all of you were doing in the summer of 2020, but I know what I was doing in the summer of 2020, I was working with my teachers to try to figure out how to put our unit framework into Canvas, not necessarily to create daily lesson plans, but to create an engaging, at that time, completely online experience for our students not knowing exactly what was going to happen for school year 2021. And so as we did that, there were some pieces from Leslie Gran, who I love and admire greatly. She kept putting out all these things to support teachers and all of these ideas. And she had created some mini units that were related to some of the topics we already had. So we incorporated some of her vocabulary and some of her pieces into what we had for unit two, where we talk about technology. So we incorporated some of those things in unit three, or I'm sorry, level two. Level three, when we are talking about, um, being able to give advice and so on and so forth. There were some components about um, social emotional learning that fit just beautifully. So we were able to integrate some of those chunks into what we already had in our units and make them much more relevant to what the students were experiencing at that time. And so the curriculum, I know, Nora, I'm babbling on about curriculum, but that is such a key piece because Yes, we need to work with the effective teachers and make them effective, and that's a process as we are trying to find teachers and find qualified teachers or get them qualified as we go through the process. But if even if I get an effective teacher and they walk in and they have nothing to touch and they're going to make all of the discretional moves with instruction, we need to at least give them a framework that guides them in the right place. Where is the brokenness found in that classroom that that you especially are focused on wanting to make sure heals? And what are some of the preparations the students then are making to bring their understanding of how brokenness can be addressed and healed out into the world? Again, through the vehicle of language. Ooh, so that's tricky because we serve 140,000 students, but so few go on to levels that are dealing with more advanced topics in a way where they can express them at the level they'd want to. So we have to be very intentional about what we do even in level one, level two, exploratory 
if we can, um, we need to make sure that we scaffold certain experiences so that the students can watch a video or look at an infographic that's showing how recycling is not as effective in some places or comparing how water usage might be used. So there are other resources. We haven't gotten too deep with these because you know we got derailed in 2020. And so right now we're still trying to patch things back to where we wanted them to go in, in school year 1920. We're trying to get back to that place and, and then start moving past where we've been while also being mindful of all the different things. Um, there are some great resources from the UN about sustainability that are available in five languages. And so there are some of those pieces that I might, again, a goal is to start threading some of those pieces into what we're working in. But this, I don't want to say it's a detour, but where we've been since March of 2020, given where I live, we've lost students, we've lost siblings, we've lost parents and grandparents, primary caregivers, we've lost teachers, we've lost administrators. Unfortunately, due to health issues and COVID and complications and so on. I personally was hospitalized for a week at the start of the pandemic. And I'm very happy to be here <laughs> to be and to have my brain back, which took a year and all of those pieces. Um, however, we've also lost some humanity along the way. And those are some of the things that I see broken we have students whose anxiety is so high for so many reasons. We don't know what all of their experiences were when we were in complete remote learning or while we were still in hybrid learning. We don't know what happened. And, you know, I'm the mother of a 27 year old. So I, I, you know, I know where his generation is. And when I've gone into the high schools and the middle schools, some of the kids just don't like to talk even in English. They prefer to text, send emojis, send memes, whatever, visual representation using somebody else's thought to convey how they feel. And in a world language classroom, we're still trying to get them to talk. And so that is, at the very basic level, we need them get to learn how to get comfortable with each other, interact with each other, even in their own space, in their own neighborhood, on their own school bus, in their own classroom. We're trying to give them an opportunity to do it in a new language where they don't have to necessarily feel compelled to express at a 10th grade level blah, blah, blah. But maybe if they get comfortable just being able to say, how are you? Oh, what did you do last night? Some basic interaction for people and how to interact with people. Hopefully that will also transfer as they are outside of that classroom and interacting with people. Anxiety is high for so many reasons, and it's not just the young people, it's all of us. Um, educators are leaving 
being at you know the education system and it's it's a lot <laughs> it's quite quite a bit so if i can help give students a voice and a, a comfortable place for them to express themselves that's a start i can't fix everything um, but i think it's so important for for our students to have a voice and for our teachers to help our students find their voice, whatever that is. Um, again, that first step, there's so many things that are broken, Nora, I can't list them all. Um, but that first step is let's learn how to at least interact with each other and communicate with each other. Beautifully said, find your voice, interact with others, there's a bit of a, well, there's a humane background to all of this, obviously, but there's also a, a kind of a spiritual side of this. You have a, a, a background of having the idea that human actions can help to repair the world that is underlying some of the things that you do, correct? Can you tell us a little bit more about that, please? Sure. <laughs> so... I'm, to borrow the expression, I was raised as a nice Jewish girl, um, mostly in suburban Chicago. And um, my background um, has kind of, has shaped my perspectives. I've always had um, been aware of what's happening outside of where I live because of fight, you know, understanding what was happening. I mean, growing up in the 70s and the 80s and the Cold War was still a thing and there were Russian refuseniks, for example, who were not allowed to leave the um, Soviet Union. And so even for my own bat mitzvah, I um, was assigned somebody to do something. We, at the time we were calling it twinning. So somebody who was about my age that could not practice her religion, was never going to have a bat mitzvah in the, in the climate they were in, and had been refused the opportunity to leave, which often meant also that their parents had lost whatever jobs they had, and that they were living in a more impoverished state than they already had been because they were told, well, you have to give up all your, your things because you're going to be leaving soon. And then th so they would prepare to leave and then they would be denied exit. And so the first young lady I was paired with to twin was diabetic and unfortunately passed away before our bat mitzvah date. I was paired with yet another girl and at my own bat mitzvah, forgive me, I made sure that both were recognized. Later, we had the opportunity, a family that came over that finally was allowed to leave, had uh, sons close to my age and my brother's age, and my parents befriended them. And we had several, um, I was going into college and would still come home for certain holidays, and we became close enough with them that we would celebrate holidays with them. Um, the older son actually was going to college 45 minutes away from me. He was at the University of Illinois and I was at Illinois State. And we ran into each other and at, 
got together and had friends in common one evening. And um, my parents are still friends with Boris and Marina. And, you know, they went to the weddings of the boys and... Boris and Marina have done quite well for themselves coming to the U.S., as have the boys and their families. And so for me, I mean, I was 12 and 13 preparing for my bat mitzvah, and this was such an important chunk of my life. So we did what we could. We didn't have a ton of things to give, but we shared. And so that's always been a piece of who I am, because different, again, different regions, different, we're we're aware. I know that my history, my family, I I was born here in the U.S. My parents were both born in Pennsylvania. One of my grandparents, however, was born in Montreal because her family, when they were leaving the Soviet Union, they were not, they were turned away by the U.S. So they went to Canada. Um, Part of my mother's family's from the Ukraine. You know, so, I do what I can where I can. And this, it's, it's, I feel that it's, I have to, that it, I want to help repair what I can. I've chosen to go, this will be my 30th year in education. This is where I've started, but that's not where my journey will end. I don't know where I'll be 35 years, you know, in the education, maybe, maybe a different pathway down the road, but everything that drives me is, I need to help prepare the world what, in whatever way that may, means. You had a such a wonderful opportunity to share many gifts and approaches. The way that you totally dive into Charlotte Mecklenburg and all of its people, not just its programmatic things, which is very clear from this conversation. Mara, when we come to the end of the podcast, I turn to my guests, and I'm going to turn to you and do the same thing here. What is it that either you want to make sure that we hear again clearly before we end this podcast or something that you have not yet been provided the opportunity to say or that you might have thought of that we didn't talk about so that we don't leave today without making sure that people have heard this from you? What might that be? I guess maybe it's something I'll say again, and I've probably said it several times during the podcast. Our job, at least my, you know, our job is world language educators. You know, my role and the the teachers I support and, and the principals of programs that I support, our job is to create opportunities for our students to express themselves in a new way or to build literacy in a language they already speak and to provide those opportunities, again, it's not about checking a box to get into college. It's not about, oh yeah, you know, we, I, I, I did my whatever and done. It, it's about giving our students the tools to interact with each other. And hopefully those skills will then transfer into other aspects so that they learn and appreciate how to interact with others in work, in college, in military, whatever that is, in their families even, so that they understand that multiple perspectives can exist and how to still communicate to understand each other. 
That's great. Thank you, Mara, for all of the very thoughtful expressions that you've provided today. I know that folks are going to come out of this with a deep sense of the possibilities and dedication that you, the educators, and language people in general have and appreciate it so much. Thank you, Nora. Thank you again for this opportunity. It's, it's been great chatting with you. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. As an educator, you have the power to reimagine and reshape education and thus the world. Vista Higher Learning is committed to giving you the best programs and resources to ensure that your students succeed in school and in life. VISTA is committed to being your partner in education. Bring VISTA along for your education journey. For more information about VISTA solutions for your K-12 classroom, visit vistahigherlearning.com.